0: Hello and welcome, for the first time in a long time, to dinner at our place. Jesse. it's been a while.
1: I know. I think we've had one kid. I think we did this last when Cohen was little.
0: Did we? So like I, we I thought we had and it's we fell off time. the
1: face of the earth.
0: It's been a long time. But we're back. We're back. Uh, not from our kitchen table, uh, but from the inside of our extremely small kitchen. Uh, closet, which is just big enough for the two of us in this tiny table. And I literally have uh, just clothes in my face. (laughs) Jessie has clothes in her face. It's extremely warm, but it's worth it. The audio quality should hopefully be pretty good.
1: Although the location of our conversation right now might not be the most authentic thing. I do have to say everything we will be talking about over the next few weeks of this podcast, I think are all conversations Genuine conversations you and I have had, whether it be when we were 20 at BYU or now as 30-something-year-old adults trying to navigate our way through this crazy world we live in. I think every piece of this conversation that we'll be having is genuine and real, although the location, I would much rather be downstairs at our kitchen table.
0: So what why are we here? What what's the what's the what brings what, us what back brings into, us into the into the podcasting game?
1: So good question. So when I, um, I always love doing this podcast with you, but when I was watching the Democratic National Convention the last night, Joe Biden spoke and he gave an extremely moving and incredibly inspiring Um, speech. And during that speech, I just kept thinking to myself, I'm like, seriously going to cry just thinking about it. He had a few things that he said that night that will forever stick with me. But that night he really um, was compelling in a way that made me think like, what am I doing? Am I doing enough? What else could I be doing to during this election to um, help people realize that he is the candidate that we all should be voting for? So while um, I knew that, I've known that for a long time that I was going to vote for him. I'm hoping this podcast will shed some light on um, on the election. And hopefully we can share some information with others that will help them decide as well.
0: And also, people just always... We live in Washington, D.C. People just always have questions about... Yeah. And I work, I work in politics, obviously. So people always have questions about... Uh, you know, just when when you work in politics and you tell people that you work in politics... They just want to talk about politics. Well, so. <laughs> so
1: I feel like most people would probably know like, oh, Steve works in politics. I even even close family members probably think this like, oh, Steve works in politics, but don't really have an idea of what that means or looks like for you. So maybe you should give our listeners new and old, whoever they might be, a little bit of a background of your situation.
0: Sure. So I was not always a political being. Uh, I grew up... Uh, I kind of lived a bunch of different places growing up. My family was not particularly political. We were not the type of family that talked about politics and current events around the dinner table. Uh, I remember kind of tuning in to presidential elections every four years uh, for the last week or two, like most Americans do, like normal people do.
1: When I met you, you wanted to be a sports journalist.
0: That's true. you were
1: 18 years old, you wanted to be a
0: sports journalist someday. Pretty much my entire childhood, I wanted to be a sports journalist. I thought that's what... Uh, my calling was that's what I was going to do with my life um, and I, I remember tuning in for for the for the presidential elections every four years just briefly and being being interested about it but then totally forgetting about it and it wasn't really I didn't have the context of like why this was important I didn't know what a president did I didn't know anything about that um, and so i I really came of age in in Dallas Texas, in kind of the first bush term uh, not George H. W. S. George W. Bush, his first term, uh, and you know that's when I really started to kind of f- notice and politics a little bit more and. It was right during his reelect in two thousand and four. I was a senior in high school at that point, and it was a really big deal because he was from Texas. He was basically God, um, and you know it was, this was you know early days of the Iraq War before public opinion had turned post nine uh, eleven. So it was, he was very popular, particularly where I was from. And you know I I'm from a conservative faith tradition. Mormons are generally very conservative.
1: No way. Tell me more.
0: <laughs> um, and. <laughs> You know, also, the area where I was living was very conservative uh, in Texas. Um, and, you know, while my family wasn't particularly political, my dad was a, a Republican who was in business, voted his pocketbook. My mom, at that point, was not a citizen, couldn't vote. Um, but so I I just kind of, because of out of that stew of influences, I kind of exited high school uh, as a thinking I was an extremely Wait, conservative Republican. Can I tell
1: everyone the, the, the deepest secret that you, I think have, can I tell them? You can nod your head yes or no. Yes. So when I met you, we were eighteen at BYU, Facebook was a new thing. At that point on your Facebook profile, you used to put your political views. Was like you put like, you know, your name, where you went to school, are you like single, dating, whatever? And then political views, and which they obviously don't have anymore. Um and they do I have me- it. You can put it on it there. there. Yeah, you can put it on and there. And when I met Steve his said very conservative. Not conservative. Not it said very conservative.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a true story. And so when I went to BYU as a freshman, I was like, I had my roommate, Daniel Anderson, who may listen to this, um, still, still one of my friends today. Uh, He was my roommate. We went to high school together. He was probably one of just the most middle of the road, moderate dudes that you could possibly find politically. Um, And he and I, our freshman year at BYU would have these knockdown drag out arguments until the middle of the night about various political issues because i thought that i was extremely informed which i would soon come to find (laughs) out i wasn't super informed but i thought i was because i was 18 and i thought i knew everything um
1: this was not like ill intent like you and no we were just debating well the thing you most people don't know this about steve is he can have a conversation with somebody and like have a pretty riled-up debate where most people might feel slightly uncomfortable, but, like, Steve is genuinely the most calm, cool, collected, and, like, does not at all take anything personally or hold anything against anyone, which I think is one of your best traits.
0: Yeah, so we would just have these debates, and it was fun, and it was, you know, until 2 o'clock in the morning in, in uh, Helaman Halls, and I would just be saying things that, you know, were so absolutely right wing that, you know, it would make Ted Cruz blush. Um, it was, you know, I was saying, you know, if you're poor, that's your fault because you didn't work hard enough and all this you stuff. Know,
1: all of this is going to get held against you one
0: day. I know. I'm, I've am i told this story many times. Um, <laughs> a lot of people who are listening to this may have heard it at some point. Um, and then over the course of uh, that first year at BYU, my, I, I actually, you know, went to school and read books and educated myself about the world a little bit. And I started to moderate a little bit, um, and then I went on a mission uh, for the LDS Church, and I was called to serve in uh, in Florida, in in the Tampa, Florida mission, which basically stretched, you know, kind of the entire Gulf Coast from uh, just north of Tampa down to down to Naples. And the first place I was assigned to serve was in Naples. I was there for nine months, which is a really, really, really long time uh, for a missionary uh, to be in any any particular place. They move you around quite a bit, and. While I was there, Naples is an extremely, extremely wealthy area. At the time I was there, is the highest tithing ward in the church. Um, so
1: tithing is like for all you non non LDS people listening, tithing is like what we pay. We pay ten percent of our, our income, to the church. And so you're saying it was like a very wealthy,
0: yeah, extremely ward extre-
1: paying a lot of tithing,
0: extremely wealthy area. And the interesting thing about Naples is on the coast. There's uh, all these beautiful houses and resorts, mansions. Uh, Steven Spielberg has a house there. Stephen King has a house there, I assume. Other wealthy men named Stephen who are not me also have large but homes. Well, they're not there.
1: paying the tithing.
0: They were not paying the tithing, <laughs> but they, it's, it's just you know opulence, opulence beyond what you can imagine, and uh, so you see that. And then, but I, there's another part of Naples that nobody know, that not nobody knows about, but it's you know obviously much less well known about. Two or three miles inland from there, uh, there's this four square mile block of mostly residential real estate called Golden Gate City, uh, which is much more middle class to downscale, extremely you know it's pretty diverse. Uh, it's where a lot of the folks who work in the resorts and work in the houses of the people who have the mansions on the coast that's where they live Uh, so it's heavily immigrant a lot of cubans a lot of haitians uh a lot of just people from all sorts of different latin american countries and so that's where i was particularly and specifically assigned to serve so i would see we would go on drives on our day off and see the coast and see the resorts and see the opulent mansions and then we'd go knock doors every day from 9 a.m to 9 p.m uh in golden gate city uh in much more humble circumstances and these people you know they would let you into their homes, these folks that we'd knock on their doors, because uh, that's what we we're asking for. We'd ask them, you know, can we come in and teach you about Jesus? And they would, you know, just the kindest, most salt of the earth people. Um, they let you in their home. They'll, you know, give you whatever they have, food, whatever they have. They and they don't have much. And they don't, they don't they didn't often didn't have much. Um, and I just remember, you know, when, when you when you go and you talk to people in their homes and you talk to them particularly about religion, you uh, people tend to open up to you about the things that they're struggling with, the problems that they're having in their life um, because religion for better, for worse. And I would say for better is how people make sense of that kind of stuff. It's how they get through the hard times. Um, and so we talked, this stuff would come up all the time and I'd sit, I, I can remember countless times where I'd sit in a family's home, usually in an immigrant family who, you know, they were just barely scraping by and, they, and it wasn't for lack of hard work. It was they were working two, sometimes three jobs, and still not making it, not being able to make ends I meet. Mean, I remember sitting in a Haitian family's home, in the middle of July in South Florida. It was, it's ridiculously hot. It's a hundred degrees outside with a hundred percent humidity. It's so hot, and just it just being so hot in their house, and them apologizing to us and saying, you know, we're really, really, really sorry but we can't afford to run the air conditioning or even the ceiling fan because we can't afford the extra electricity bill. And then telling me about how they're paying two, or they're working two or three jobs and this is still the the way that they're living. And so for me...
1: Yeah, what was what was 18 year old what 18-year-old Steve? I was 19, 19, year old 19,
0: 19 years old at the time. I'd grown up, you know, upper middle class, well off, um, pretty white bread, suburban lifestyle. Um I had I had you know friends who were of different backgrounds than me, but but not I hadn't seen poverty in America this up close before, not at this level, and so seeing this up close
1: and and a lot of people sorry to interrupt but a lot of people in our in our faith serve missions, but you go to other countries, and I think oftentimes people think oh I go to, I mean I don't know pick any country, but I and you uh, you kind of know it's going to be there, but was it was it was it shocking to see it in your own country? Like you know it's there but like to really see it like this is the same America I grew up in.
0: Yeah, I mean I think that's it, it was a shock to my system because it was an affront to everything I believed about how the world worked. Like I said, I believed that if you worked hard enough and this is basic, you know, American dream 101, if you work hard enough no matter what, if you are willing to put in the work in America, anybody can make it. And the dark flip side of that is the assumption that if you're not making it, you're not it's because you now. didn't work hard enough. You're not working hard enough yet. And here I was sitting in these people's homes, people who I knew were good people. They were some of the best people I'd ever met. And... They were telling me how hard they were working, some of the hardest working people you'll ever meet, and yet they still couldn't make it. And so that was a direct confrontation to my worldview at the time, to how I understood how the world worked. And I just remember thinking to myself, this isn't how it's supposed to be. This isn't the promise that this country was founded. on. This wasn't what I was taught Growing up about how America should work. This is the it's richest.
1: Like they lied to you all those years. This is
0: the richest country in the world, and we still have people struggling like this. The richest country in the history of the world at any point in time, and people are still struggling. And so I decided, you know, this was wrong, and there needed to be something that would be should be done about that. That people like this shouldn't have to live this way when they work this hard. And so I started reading. I had a lot of time as a missionary. To read. I, you know, we work all day and then you go home at night and I'm kind of a night owl. So I didn't go to bed at 1030 like I was supposed to. And so I just get library books from the library and I'd read and I read about politics. I try to figure out how do we fix this? Um,
1: That's cute. A little 19 year old Steve in his shirt and tie trying to fix It's the dreamer that you've always been and will always be the optimist. What do we do about
0: it? It's cute. What do we do about this? It's a serious problem. I was personally, you know, moved by it. And, you know, what I found pretty quickly after, you know, starting to read about politics and government and poverty is, you know, that's a really big problem. And, you you know, my my conservative principles would say, you know, the way to fix this problem is through People's personal charity. People should give more money to good causes. Churches, faith-based organizations, have, should should you know we should work through them. And what I found after reading about the world and how and just truly the scope of this problem is you can do as much personal giving as you want. It ain't gonna make a drop in this bucket. And really, the only organization on earth that potentially has the capacity to make a dent in this problem. Is the United States government, the federal government? It's so big, the size of and scale, uh, the scope of it is really the only thing that can make a make a difference. And so I kept reading, and I kept reading. This happened to coincide with uh, with the rise of a, a young senator from Illinois named Barack Obama. This is
1: wait, I've heard of him.
0: Yeah, you might have heard of him before. Wait,
1: I think Steve's first eBay name or something was. Obama for press with a four and then P-R-E-Z.
0: I think that's true. So this was all happening in like 2007.
1: A very, yeah. a very, very good time.
0: Right. So this is like the beginning of the 2008 Democratic primary. Obama is just starting. Nobody really knows like who he is and, yet. I mean,
1: I didn't think we were going to take this like long detour down the mission lane and we'll get back on track to answer all of your very good questions. But I do remember you telling me why you were on your mission the only time you could watch the news was if you w- woke up and worked out first thing in the morning and it was on at the gym in your, like, apartment building. So you. I mean, like, that's probably the only up.
0: time I could legally yeah, watch the news. Yeah, so you'd, like, news. wake
1: up, and, like, I remember you'd be like, yeah, I went to the gym, like, every, you know, like, in the morning so that you could watch the news and see what was going on in the, in the campaign and with the election. Yes,
0: and I had good friends in Florida who would keep me posted, and I, I probably bent the rules a little bit more than I should have in terms of... uh You know, trying to media consumption, trying to stay stay up on the election. But I was really, really inspired um, by Barack Obama. And I had seen just by chance his his convention speech in 2004 a couple years earlier before I was really into politics. But I remember watching it by myself in my house as a senior in high school and thinking this guy seems he's
1: going somewhere.
0: this guy seems really cool and really inspiring. And it's a great speech, regardless of you know, which side you're on at the time, the red states and the blue states and all the, the, you know, United, is, states. the United States of America. It's a great speech. Um, and so when I really got into this and I really had my political awakening and he was there and he was kind of starting to rise, uh, I got on that train and I, I never got off. And so I came back from my mission. Uh, you
1: were a raging liberal. I
0: was a raging progressive. I'm
1: pretty sure that fall all you wore were Obama shirts. Like for that whole fear first fall back at BYU.
0: 2008. Yeah. Yeah. I basically came back and said, this is what I'm going to do with my life. I'm going to, I knew nothing about politics. I knew nothing about the professional aspect of or how one makes a career in politics. I literally knew nothing, but I knew it's what I wanted to do.
1: And I remember we got married and then we had a lot of conversations that first year of marriage about, cause I also grew up in a very conservative family. And we had a lot of conversations that first year about politics and viewpoints on the world and. And they were really they were really great. And I remember when you told me one night, you were like, hey, I want to move to Washington, D.C. This was probably what, 2010. we ten. We'd been married a year. I got home from work one night and you're like, I want to move to Washington, D.C. And like the, the 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 control freak in me would have normally been like, what? But I was like, yeah, yeah, that's a great idea.
0: <laughs> yeah. So I, I, and you
1: looked at me like I was crazy, and I was like, yeah, this is great. Like, th- this feels great. Let's do it.
0: One of the few, one of those fork in the road moments you have but in let's, life. Let's, for sure.
1: fast I mean, that was a great story. And I, I never, I almost started crying when you were telling me that because it is very moving. Um, but let's fast forward to where you're at now in your career, and you can give like a very, abbreviated version of not even go you're saying i'm
0: talking too much no
1: i just don't want to make these people listen forever and i do want them to come back if
0: you do want (laughs) look if you want to understand why i do this for a living and how i got here that story i know
1: i totally i like to call
0: it my origin story this is my this is my peter parker this is uncle ben getting (laughs) shot great great responsibility the whole thing i'm
1: not discounting you i'm just saying but maybe nobody cares as much as I do. And I really care. People but... love
0: that story, okay. Jessie. I know people
1: love... I almost people cried. love... I've heard that story probably 10 times and I still almost teared up. So it's a great story. I'm not discounting your story, but let's like, rather than give them the the play-by-play of every year, the last decade we've been in D.C., just maybe give them a, a close-knows version.
0: Yeah, so I... And why
1: you're qualified to be on this podcast with me answering these <laughs> very hard questions.
0: <laughs> I uh, I started working in politics in Utah when I was in college. The nice thing about Utah is... It's a, uh, the nice thing about Utah is there's, well, this is a bad thing and a good thing. So Utah, extremely Republican, um, extremely, the Democratic Party there, there's just not much of a base in terms of, you know, you don't win a lot of elections. There's not a lot of elected Democrats in Utah. And so because of that, you know, there's not really a, a lot of party operatives there who do do campaigns professionally because they don't, Democrats don't raise a lot of money because they don't win. It's like a... Where are
1: we still back in Provo or we uh, moved to D.C.?
0: An unvirtuous cycle. <laughs> but I ended up, I just I just decided I was going to throw myself in. I started volunteering for campaigns because of there's just nobody around. And if, you, if you're... The you're ni- like, you
1: can spell your name? You're the, a Democrat? Yes. The awesome. nice thing
0: about that problem is that if you are willing to show up, work hard and have a modicum of intelligence. You can do basically anything that you want. And so I ended up being a a communications director for a U.S. Senate race in Utah at 22, which is extremely abnormal. I didn't know at the time, but just extremely abnormal. Um, And then I we made the decision to come to D.C. I came here. We had no jobs. We knew nobody. And in a town where relationships are everything, that can be a little bit of a problem. But just kind of through providence, or the grace of God, there's a whole nother story for another time. Uh, I got a job at the at the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, which is the campaign arm for the House Democratic Caucus. So basically, we work to elect Democrats to the House of Representatives. And
1: pause. That was the first time we, I had health insurance since we got married. That's Thank true. you very much.
0: That's true. Um, so I worked there in the 2012 cycle, which was a pretty good cycle for Democrats. President Obama got reelected. We picked up some House some House seats, um, which was great. We did great in the Northeast, which was my region. Um, and then I went to work for a uh, consulting firm, a communications consulting firm called Hathaway Communications for basically the last seven years uh, where we worked with clients in politics and government and nonprofits and philanthropy, all good progressives trying to Make the world a better place uh, on all manner of communications issues and really, uh, really honed my skills and made myself into a communication, a political communications uh, expert of sorts. Uh, I, spent, I think you're pretty good at it. I got my, I like to say I got my Ph.D., uh, from Doug Hathaway, who was the, the founder of that firm. And then uh, last the end of last year, I left that firm, and now I work for Priorities USA, which is the largest uh, pro-Biden super PAC or outside group. Uh, in this election, we are going to spend $200 million um, between you know last year and November coming up here uh, to support Joe Biden, primarily through uh, political ads, both on television and a lot online. Um, and so I spend all day, every day, thinking about this election and thinking about how we can uh, elect Joe Biden as the next president uh, of the United States. So I'm at Priorities USA right now. I'm the director of Battling State Communications there. Um, so I think about Michigan. Think about I think it's about Michigan and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and Florida and Arizona and North Carolina all day, every day, and how we get those voters to, to vote for Joe Biden.
1: That is really great you do that, mostly because I, I think, like, most of the people probably listening were all kind of terrified about this election, so it helps me to sleep well at night knowing that you care so much and you're doing all you can, um, but I know a lot of people feel helpless, so there's a lot of ways people can get involved um, and help the campaign or this or that, but um, like I said earlier, I think one thing that I felt like I could contribute... Um, to the election is us answering some questions so I had friends on instagram and um Facebook no I think I did mostly Instagram um submit questions that they had for you Steve they want to know what you think they don't they want to really, know what you think They too. don't really care what I think but I might contribute my thoughts every once in a while um but anyway so we're, what we're gonna do is we're gonna break this down into a few different episodes this episode is going to be just basic politics questions um Political Science 101 with Steve, and then we're also going to do, if your question is not answered here, don't worry, we will be answering them all, but we're going to do another episode about um, politics and religion, which will be very, very fascinating. Um, We're going to have a whole episode about the 2020 election, and then we're going to do one more episode about current events and just kind of like a miscellaneous scrap bag. So um, tonight, we're going to dive right in with just the basic questions that I have honestly asked you over the years and i don't think there's a there's a question that's too simple or too dumb so i'm glad a lot of these got asked
0: are these are these all anonymous
1: they're all anonymous yeah and i'm not going to reveal who asked them that would be that would not not be cool i said it was gonna be anonymous from the beginning so i do want to hold true to my word. fair enough um so anyway the first question was asked and again some of these might need longer answers if some of them are shorter answers i think that's fine as well but um, the basic breakdown of Democratic and Republican viewpoints, without going like three hours long.
0: Yeah. So Just I was gonna say, a... how many episodes are we spending on this question? This <laughs> is only. How long can we
1: sit in this closet for?
0: Yeah. This is only the history of the last two hundred years. Our kids up at
1: seven a.m., so we got a long time.
0: This is only a history of the last two hundred years of this country. Um, so at its core, there's the party. The two major parties in this country um, have several things that they disagree on. But kind of the most foundational disagreement which keeps playing itself out over and over and over again uh, over the course of decades is one about what is the appropriate size and scope of government? What is the role of government? That is the fundamental question of the federal government in particular. That is the fundamental question of American politics. Republicans who tend to be conservative uh, in their ideological leanings, um, they believe that there should be a small federal government and that the, the federal government should not play a particularly active role uh, in the lives of its citizenry, that though that those a lot of those decisions uh, should be left to the individual states. Um, or
1: to businesses, do they want more like? Sure, they money? are
0: they are more business friendly. But that the government should generally, uh, at least in terms of the economy and the actions of uh, the government in in those types of ways, it should the go- the federal government should should be small, should stay out of people's lives, uh, and that you know, as a result, you know, if you have a smaller federal government that does less things, uh, you're going to pay they would say less taxes. Um, And so they advocate for for less taxes generally. They tend to skew, in my opinion, and again, you're not going to get a straight down the middle answer from me.
1: I'm not going to pretend
0: that. But I would say they tend to skew. We're trying to
1: be reasonably right. I'm trying to be
0: reasonable in representing the uh, the other side's views. Uh, they would tend to they tend to skew those tax breaks uh, and those lower taxes toward more toward those on the upper end of the income scale because there is a belief that if you give the the wealthy more money uh, and corporations more money That it will then trickle down to everybody else because those are the people that will create they will use that money to create jobs and those jobs will then employ people who have less money and then they will have more money and it will trickle down. That's the the trickle down economics is a is a common term. Uh,
1: Um, I'm just going to spoiler. Does that work?
0: It does not work. Uh, Is there
1: like proof behind that?
0: There's a lot of proof about okay. the last thirty, forty years of
1: well, then why do they keep doing
0: fiscal it? policy. They
1: think it's going to change.
0: It's an ideological commitment. They believe, and I have many Republican friends, obviously, but the, and they believe that the be, and they believe this honestly. I'm not saying that yeah, they're. No, 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 no. I think they're wrong, but they believe that. But there's a
1: difference between thinking the somebody's government and thinking somebody's not that a good the
0: country person. will the country will run better if the federal government. Is smaller so, and does less and you know if you're gonna so
1: more states more states have more power that states have more have power the power is the just not gonna sit states out on the table states have more power. power so states take the power
0: yes now on my side of the aisle we believe at least on this question of the role of government we believe in a more active federal government we believe that the problems that face this country are big And so we need to bring all the ammo that we have to the table to try and solve them. And nothing has the ability to uh, bring that ammo to the table like the federal government, like all of the states acting in concert through an actor like the federal government um, to address issues that face people's lives. Um, And we believe that you have to pay for those things, too. Uh, We are not, you know, you hear a lot about tax and spend liberals we are fairly fiscally responsible we do spend we will we would like to spend more on issues like healthcare for example education education things like that Rose. um but we also at least historically in the last several years have been pretty good at paying for those programs now the way that we would like to pay for them is probably different than our republican friends like we we would like to tax particularly wealthy people um in order to raise revenues for paying for those programs. The federal government is just like any other checkbook. It, if you're going to spend money on things, you need to bring more money in. Just like your family. So
1: both parties agree with that. If you're going to spend, you should bring it in. But the Republic, Republicans just don't want to spend. And then they want
0: to. Uh, they like to spend on certain things. Republicans will spend on defense. For example, they're believers in strong national defense. They spend a lot of money on the military, a lot of money on the defense department. Mm-hmm. There's that is the biggest expenditure of the federal government, one of the biggest expenditures by far. Um and in they're general. fine they're they're fine with spending on that. Um the problem is a lot of times they they want to spend that they they still spend a lot of money uh despite not really liking it. But then they also want to give tax cuts because they don't like taxes. That's like if I was going to boil down my Republican friends, like top thing that they care about, it's less taxes. But,
1: but can we just like I, this was this is kind of a tiny detour. But I think what really blew my mind is when we were young and had a conversation about taxes and about how taxes are progressive based on like the more you make, the more you should be taxed is what is what Democrats believe. So like, for example, Joe Biden says if you make under under four hundred thousand dollars, you will not be you will not see a tax increase. Correct. But then, like, explain how, like, the percentages go up. Not not necessarily, like, you don't know the exact numbers and facts, but, like, a general... Don't Republicans, don't Democrats believe that, like, the yes. more you make, the more you should get taxed?
0: Yes. The more money you make, the more you pay in taxes because you therefore have more, more money. money to yeah. contribute to our society. We do not see taxes as I know nobody likes to pay taxes. Everybody, they pay, get that tax bill at the end of the year in April, whenever you pay your taxes uh, personally. And you say, ah, I really wish I had that money in my bank account. But. The way that I see taxes, and I'll speak for myself, is that taxes are a con- are our contribution to living in the society that we live in. This is how we This is how we pay our fair share to be able to enjoy all the things we enjoy in America. And a lot of people will say, well, I don't get anything from the federal government. I don't get anything from government. Why should I have to I pay for I
1: think I asked it? you that question when I was 20 years old.
0: Everybody gets something from the federal government. Even if you are not currently on Social Security, for example, or taking advantage of government anti-po- anti-poverty anti programs, aka welfare, even if you are not that person right now, A, you may be that person. You In terms of social security and Medicare, you definitely will be that person in the future. Um, and B, there are a host of other things that the government does that you do not see every single day that your taxes are paying for. Stuff like roads, stuff like at your local level, um, although they get federal funding too, fire, police, um, stuff like uh, regulating food to make sure it's safe, food safety, make ins- food inspection, uh, funding education. A lot, all, a lot of education is funded at the local level, but those school districts also get money from the Department of Education on a federal level. So stuff that you do not, you may not see the hand of the federal government in your life, but we all enjoy a lot of benefits from the federal government, from those federal taxes that we pay, even if we don't see them, you know, showing up in our bank account every month. It's not
1: like a dollar for dollar thing, but yeah.
0: Right. But there are and Democrats believe that those that that role that the federal government currently plays is good, that the federal government should play that role. It's important that the federal government does these things. It's important that we do have people who, for example, inspect the safety and quality of our food so that we don't. All get sick because there is nobody watching to make sure that these food producers and companies that produce our food uh, are giving us stuff that's good. Yeah. We think that's a net. We think that's a net positive, and that we sh- we're going to have to pay for that, right? And so you know, and we believe in terms of you know, yes, the federal government should continue to do those things, um, but also we should be continuing to. Use every tool in our bag to solve the problems that we haven't figured out how to solve yet. We have rampant income inequality in this country. We have still challenges with healthcare, even though we've made a lot of progress over the last decade or so. Um, we should don't we don't get be, me
1: started on healthcare, Steve.
0: We should be trying to solve those problems, and that the federal that it is right and proper, and that the federal government has a role. It doesn't have to be the solution to everything, but the federal government has a role in finding the solution to well, the problems I mean, that we face as a society. I mean, it is
1: everywhere, even like. Isn't isn't it true that like a lot of um, pharmaceutical, a lot of prescriptions, a lot of things in the medical field are often um, given grants by the government and things yep. like that? Like it's it's everywhere.
0: Yes, particularly in pharmaceuticals. Like medical, you think about the coronavirus right now. The there's tons and tons of pharmaceutical companies and universities across the across the country, across the world, trying to come up with a vaccine for the coronavirus. Um, They are not simply doing that because out of the goodness of their heart or because, you know, they believe a lot of that research is being underwritten by grants from the federal government. And they also know that if and when they do find the vaccine, they know that the U.S. federal government will buy millions upon millions upon millions of doses of that vaccine. Mm -hmm. And they have a they have a built in buyer for that for that product. And so they are fronting they are fronting some research and development and trying to put their people and their resources behind this because they know that A they're getting partially funded by the federal government which is which is making it easier for them to do that. And then on the back end if they are successful, there is a buyer, there's a huge market where they can where they can distribute their product. That's a very specific Yeah, yeah, but it is everywhere.
1: You know, the the, the money from the government, it really is everywhere. Um, So I guess, is there any other, besides taxes and kind of ideas of spending, any other basic ideas that break down the difference between Democrats and
0: Republicans? So there's the role of government in kind of economic terms, which we talked about. There's also in terms of personal liberties, and what should the government be able to tell you about how you live your personal life? This is where the two parties kind of believe the opposite yeah, of they what switch. they believe in terms of you know their economics is Republicans would say that the government should have a stronger, and there are some libertarian Republicans which believe slightly different, but the mainstream of Republican thought for the last 10 or 15 years has been that the government has more of a role to play in terms of telling people how they should live their lives in but terms okay. of and what's okay. okay and what's not okay in terms of stuff like same-sex marriage. Uh, stuff like abortion, um, particularly on social issues like that in terms of, you know, flag burning stuff like that. If you want to go back to the seventies, you know, how you, how you can express yourself, what's okay, um, particularly when it comes to criticizing the country. Um, so, and then Democrats tend to take the opposite view. We tend to take a more expansive, uh, view of Democrat, of the government should be hands off on how you live your life, uh. In your bedroom, uh, within your home, uh, with your doctor in terms of how you get your healthcare, particularly in the, in the case of women. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's interesting that they, they are. There's a difference there. They kind of flip when you get when you step out of the economic the arena and into the social arena.
1: Interesting. So this is I mean, I think that is enough of a enough of a of a of a primer a primer for um for that um this is an interesting question. I've heard a few times that the democratic views of today are not the same as they were back in the day like pre-1970s. So if you were a democrat during FDR, you'd be a republican today. Is that true? And I've heard something like this too. So
0: The the parties have morphed over decades and decades and decades in terms of their ideological views and their policy views, you know, Democrats and Republicans weren't with us at the beginning of the country. We actually had no political parties at the beginning of the country. And then we've kind of had different parties over the course of the last 200 whatever years. Um, but for the last, you know, at least century or so, um, it's since, you know, since the 1860s, so more than a century, um, we've had the Democratic, Repar- the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. And for a long, long time, the Democratic Party was the party of small government, of states' rights, uh, primarily concentrated with their power in the southern states. Um, and the Republican Party was the northern party, which believed in a stronger central government, a stronger federal government, uh, less states' rights. Uh, and the primary uh, the primary point of contention for a long time was slavery, the um, mm-hmm. country's original sin, um, with southern Democrats. Uh, advocating for you know obviously their states being able to continue to own slaves. Northern Republicans largely being arguing against that. Um, and the parties don't really start to take the form that they are now, until the 1930s in the Great Depression with uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt um, who's really the f- the forefather of the modern Democratic Party he comes into power as a Democrat from New York so he was a northern Democrat uh, and he comes in uh, and because of the scale of the problem uh, mm-hmm. that he was facing at the time he institutes massive he took
1: the presidency right after the depression right
0: n- in the middle of it in the 1932 of it. he's elected Um And so, because of just the massive scale of the problem that he's facing, he uses the federal government to basically, he drastically expands the federal government to try and just solve, just put. Any type of water he can on this burning inferno of a for- economic forest fire, um, and so he drastically expands uh, the the face of the federal government, and that is really a big inflection point in turning and uh, in- it kind of flips the politics of the country on the head, where Democrats who were previously small government party become the big government party and Republicans in their opposition to Roosevelt become a smaller government party. Interesting. And then there's another inflection point a couple of years later, a couple decades later in the sixties over civil rights, because again, the Democrats up until that point had largely been a Southern party with Roosevelt. It starts to kind of shift to a more Northern power base, but there's still a lot of conservative Southern Democrats uh, in the party until the sixties. And, uh, Lyndon B. Johnson signs the Civil Rights Act in 1965, um, and... 1964 Voting Rights Act, 1965, and how dare you not know those he, years, Steve? He loses basically the Democrats when Lyndon Johnson signs those bills. He said, "We we just lost the South for a generation, and that has been more than a generation." Uh, f- basically, starting then, you know, conservative Southern Democrats started flipping to Republican, or they, you know, ultimately ended up losing, and then weren't re- they replaced were by conservative Republicans? Um, and so the power bases of the party really shift then. And there's, you know, very few uh, Democrats in the South and what we now term to be, quote unquote, red states. Um, Wait, are they going to
1: go blue? And in, in? are they going to go blue in a month?
0: Well, that's a, that's another question. Uh, we'll save
1: that for episode four, episode three.
0: That's that's another question. But you see kind of yeah. uh, th- another shift there where the South becomes reliably Republican and the Democrats really shore up their their power base in the North um And then obviously on the West Coast in California and Oregon and Washington. Um, but that's those are kind of in the last 100, We're 150 really years. Kind of like those points. are the big turning points and that kind of give us the structure of these parties as they are today.
1: That's really that is a, I just want you all to know that I asked Steve if he was going to prep for this podcast and he was like, no, I'm just going to wing it. This is Steve winging it. Um, All right. Kind of in line with that. Can we talk about the dangers and problems with a two party
0: system? So
1: our kids don't wake up for another seven and a half hours.
0: Yeah. So the two-party system. A lot of people complain about the two-party system. I would say that if I was going to get to pick in, if we we're going to start America over. Yeah, let's do it. And we we're going to start today. This uh, the the form of government and the rules that we have. In terms of how our legislature is set up and the executive branch like the House, and all the the, Senate, the House, the Senate, this. the the executive, the office, the executive branch. It's not really how I would set it up. I, I think if I I'm a big fan of like a parliamentary system, like you have in in the UK, for example, um, which I think is just a much more democratic, small d democratic, much more responsive to uh, the will of the people than ours is. Um, but with the way that our laws are set up with the way our constitution is written. Um, we will have a two-party system forever. We've all we've there's never been more than two major political parties in America in the enti- its entire history uh, at the same time, uh, and there's a reason for that. The structure of the country, the laws, how we govern is set up for two diametrically opposed forces the founding
1: founding fathers they wanted it to be a two party system
0: they didn't have they didn't write anything about parties in the constitution there's no mention of parties in the constitution Uh, george washington when he left office said he hoped that we wouldn't have political parties he was a little naive in my perspective because they formed immediately after he was gone Um, but we it will you know sorry to all my third party friends out there your it will vote doesn't matter. No, it will always be a it will always be a two party system. Let's say let's say that uh, in Virginia eight, which is the house district that we live in, let's say we all got enough people together in Virginia eight to elect a member of the Green Party. For example, let's pick a random third party, the Green Party, uh, in to Congress, into the House of Representatives mm-hmm. in November. He would go, he or she would go to Congress. They would, it would be a representative. They would get to vote. She's
1: going to go to
0: Congress. She would go to Congress. She would get a vote in the, in the House of Representatives. But the way that Congress is set up is based on membership within your parties. Congress. Because whoever has the majority... Has the power. They control what goes to the floor. They control what gets voted on. They control They control who whoever sits on
1: the power as in like whoever has the most seats,
0: the most seats in the Congress at that point. So right now it's Nancy Pelosi. The Democrats have the most seats in the House of Representatives. Nancy Pelosi is the Speaker of the House. So she, she has all she decides everything. everything that goes on. She decides with her leadership so team what about our green who party sits girl? on what who sits on what's com- what committees. Um, and so there are there are independents. In Congress. Right. In the Senate, we have independents. Bernie Sanders is the most famous example. He is an independent. He is. And he did not run and win on the Democratic Party line in Vermont. But because an independent in Congress has zero power because they have no party They're structure. They're all by themselves. You are literally an independent. The word means what it means. He has to caucus with the Democrats. He caucuses with the Democrats because that's the closest party to his ideological beliefs. He joins their caucus, even though he didn't get elected as a Democrat, quote unquote, officially. He has joined the Democratic caucus. He's a member of the Democratic leadership team in the Senate. So he helps make all the decisions with Chuck Schumer and the gang. Um, It's because in order to have influence... In order to get on the right you committees, on a team. to get to get the right committee assignments, which is where a lot of the laws are a lot of the real work that nobody sees on the news is done, is in committee. Um, in order to get those assignments, get on the committees you want to get to work on the issues you want to work on and pass the bills that you think are going to be right for your constituents, you gotta you gotta have a team. You gotta be an And author. so. I understand why people want a third party. I understand why people are sick of both parties. I obviously don't agree with.
1: But we're them. just sitting around and complaining about something that's never going to change.
0: Yes. And so, you know, the reality is if you think that you are going to vote third party as a message to the two party system, as a message to, you know, stick it to the to the your conscience. Yeah, that's fine. And you can do that. And you could if, if that helps you sleep good at night, that's fine. But just know that it will not make a difference. There will be no tangible difference that is made by voting third party because A, that person will never win. And B, even if they did win, they would be hamstrung and have to join a party caucus as soon as they got to the Hill, as soon as they got yeah. to DC. Interesting. So
1: I guess we don't really talk about the dangers and problems, but it's kind of an end. I mean, the, what it people,
0: is. yes, there are, there are challenges. I mean, it does. The reason why I like a parliamentary system. For example, like the UK has, like Canada has, um, and you know, I am a. I mean,
1: if we could get Justin Trudeau, I'll uh, do anything to have Justin Trudeau. But a
0: parliamentary country. system allows and for very cute family. Yes, but the structure of a parliamentary system allows for multiple parties.
1: Yeah, more of right? an ebb and flow, not so much a,
0: There like, can be a, multiple major parties, and yeah. so, and even even if you're not a major party, you still have power. So, like for example, the in in uh, England, for example, in the United Kingdom. If the the conservatives, you know, win the most seats, they have many many parties. They have conservatives. They have labor. They have liberal democrats. They have UKIP, which is the independence party. They have a bunch of different parties. And let's say that conservatives win the most uh, win the most uh, seats in parliament. Um, they get to then elect the prime minister based on yeah. their party, but they have to have a majority. And so if they don't win the most vote, if they don't have a majority of the seats, they have to then partner. They have to form a coalition with another one of the minority parties to form a government to it be able to like actually
1: working together.
0: Yes. It pushes wow, you. Wow. That it, is
1: that is groundbreaking. It
0: pushes you to work together. It's be, it, and this is formed by how their elections are actually run. It's a lot in a lot of these places. It's not just first past the post. Whoever gets the most it's votes organic, wins. It's more... there's ranked choice voting. There's, there's a whole different way they run their elections, which produces more more
1: representation,
0: more rep- is more representative of the will of the people uh, allows for more pluralistic thought. And therefore, you have to it's not just two sides pitted against each other, which is one of the challenges kind of, of the
1: whiplash re- right now. I feel like it's
0: one of the challenges of, you know, the American system of government is, you know, the two parties define themselves, often define themselves against one another. Um, and you, not only are you for what you're for, you're against what the other guy is for. Yeah. Um, and that is a challenge. And I think it hasn't been that way in the past. I think it we we are living in a highly politicized, highly polarized time right now in our been nations. But
1: it's polarized, and people will say that. It's like... It,
0: it's it's much more polarized now than it ever, than it was, you know, 30 years ago, for okay, example. So in the, and in a the lot of that, there's a lot of past. reasons for that in terms yeah. of, you know, how much information we have access to, <laughs> <News>.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: how much information we have access to from being able to choose where you get your information from, mm-hmm. being able to have access to people who agree with you and creating echo chamber for yourself. Alternate of, facts. Yes. And with, yeah, yes. And the right has done a very good job of creating kind of a conservative media ecosystem that I don't think the left has... Has matched as much um, in terms of just a purely ideological um, press organ, but polarization is not the fault of any one party. It is it is kind of an outcome of the system that we live in being pushed to kind of a a, a very difficult spot um, by forces that there's blame to go around for everybody, yeah. and there's stuff that isn't. To be blamed on anybody who's actually in the system is just part of the world changing, and yeah. this has happened. There's there been super polarized times in the past. Um, obviously, slavery was a huge thing, and civil rights in the '60s was a huge was a huge yeah, inflection polarizing. point for the country. in um, those fights, um, and you know, we worked through those to a certain extent. Um, a little bit. A little bit. We still obviously didn't solve all the problems. But, um, but
1: I, I do feel inspired that like there are times when things are more polarized and then they can they can unify. And then there's there's it will ebb and flow as much as a two party system can.
0: Yeah. I mean, this is, you know, a lot of it over the last four years has been exacerbated by our president who, you know, and this is obviously me sharing my opinion, which is
1: what, what I'm doing on this, this podcast. They're getting it for free. Give them your uh, opinion.
0: Uh, our president has he is, you know, and I don't know that there's anybody who would there's not a lot of people, I think, on the other side who would disagree with me on this, if they were being honest, is he thrives and his political he is best off politically by creating contention, by dividing, by by really leaning into the polit, into the polarization by really the people who love Donald Trump, love Donald Trump. And so he needs to keep those people super engaged super super, chaotic. super super engaged and then try and you know try and win with that 40% of the vote uh 40% of the population which you know we'll is
1: not a majority 40% is not a majority i don't know if right but that.
0: if you if the if you can gin up your folks enough that they're so excited that they're definitely going to vote and the other guys who may have a majority of the population to agree with them but you know, if we don't succeed being one of those other guys myself, if we don't succeed in getting that 60 percent of the population, unifying them, motivating them, getting them to the polls to vote. If you have 40 percent that really, really love you and are going to walk through fire for you, they would and they would, they love they love him. Uh, you, could, you can eke out a win, which is what we saw in 2016. Donald Trump won by 75, 80,000 votes spread across only three states.
1: Which it, is bizarre. It was
0: a very small margin, but he, his base was active enough and there was enough drop off from Obama to Clinton. Let's just
1: process that. 70,000 people.
0: 80, 000. It
1: never gets old. It's four years, uh, four years later. And every time you tell me that, it's like the first time. 70,000, 80,000 people across three states decided the election. Yep. And a lot of those voted for a third party.
0: A lot of folks did vote for third parties. If the if Like people... they
1: voted. It wasn't like, oh, if we had had, like people voted.
0: Yes. A lot of times, you know, you'll say that, you know, if you vote for a third party, maybe it doesn't matter because a lot of times third parties, you know, they don't get as so many votes as to really, you know, affect the outcome of an election 2016 was the exception to that rule in that there was a lot of people that voted for, for a third party because, you know, probably a lot of them didn't really like either candidate. They didn't like either of their options and said, I'm just going to vote third party. And when that happens in a large enough numbers, yes. it does affect the election. <laughs> if even a portion of those folks, a small, 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 small portion in Michigan, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania vote for Hillary Clinton rather than for the third-party candidate, for Jill Stein or whatever, Kids wouldn't
1: be in cages. Uh, then Donald Trump would, would not have won.
0: Donald Trump would not have won.
1: I don't know how we got from the dangers and problems of two-party system in in twenty sixteen. Mm, it's all After related. it always comes back to twenty sixteen. Um, I don't. And you were talking about something else before that that was interesting. And I kind of lost. I forgot about that. But another question is: Is America the greatest country, or is it running on outdated ideas?
0: So this is a this is a really big question and. The thing that I think about when I think about this question, and it's 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 a very difficult question, I don't know if there's really an answer for. I don't the the the, the long and short of it is I don't think there's an answer to this question, because how do you measure what it means to be the greatest country. I'm obviously from America. I love America. I work in American politics. I love this country. I think we're great. I think we've done a lot of great things in the world, in the history of our country. I think we have a lot of challenges, too, that we need to be really, and shortcomings, that we need to be really honest with ourselves about. I think that's part of loving your country is yeah. is, is being honest with it, with ourselves about it. But the thing, uh, there's there's a there's a clip, and I'll, I'll drop the audio in here, from a show... Called the Newsroom, which is written by Aaron Sorkin, is one of my favorite favorite that television really writers. Actually. The first scene of the Newsroom and the first the first scene of the first episode. I'm
1: sure you don't have it memorized.
0: I mean, it's long, but. Uh, there's the main character in the show is is this news anchor kind of a straight down the known for being kind of straight down the middle but not particularly you know really worried about his ratings doesn't take stands because he doesn't want to piss anybody off. Uh, his his name is uh is Will McAvoy. Is he
1: played by Jeff Daniels. He's played
0: by Jeff Daniels. Is
1: he Jeff Daniels in Dumb and Dumber? Yes, he is. Wow, he really came full circle.
0: The man has some range. Um, yeah, he does. So anyway, the, the but that's the f- not
1: the guy that was Uncle Joey in Full House, right? Because he kind of looks like no, him.
0: that's Dave Coulier. That's a whole nother thing. Dave
1: Coulier kind of looks like uh, you Uncle could see Jesse it. could look like. It. Okay,
0: that's not Uncle I mean, Jesse. Uncle that's Uncle, Uncle Joey. Joey. Um, Uncle Joey. Um, but anyway, in this, in the first scene, uh, Will McAvoy, this report, this news anchor, he's at a, a panel. Uh, at a college and he's with a, a, a conservative and a liberal and they're being asked questions from the audience and he's kind of not taking uh, the questions super seriously and obviously the the liberal and the conservative are are kind of just uh, cartoons of the of what you'd expect a liberal and a con- conservative to be and he's Will's not taking a position or answering any questions, and so he's just making jokes. And then the moder- the the moderator really starts to press him to to answer a question. and this girl, one of the students asks, you know, "What, in your opinion, makes America the greatest country in the world?" And will tries to joke. Um, but then he gets pu- he gets pushed on uh, on the answer. And I think the answer is really interesting. i'll drop the I'll drop the audio anyway, right, right here.
2: No. I'm going to hold you to an answer on that. What makes America the greatest country in the world? Well, Lewis and Sharon said it. Diversity and opportunity and freedom and freedom. I'm not letting you go back to the airport without answering the question. Well, our Constitution is a masterpiece. James Madison was a genius. The Declaration of Independence is, for me, the single greatest piece of American writing. You don't look satisfied. One's a set of laws and the other's a declaration of war. I want a human moment from you. What about the people? Why is America- not the greatest country in the world, Professor. That's my answer. You're saying- Yes. sure used to be. We stood up for what was right. We fought for moral reasons. We passed laws, struck down laws for moral reasons. We waged wars on poverty, not poor people. We sacrificed. We cared about our neighbors. We put our money where our mouths were, and we never beat our chest. We built great big things, made ungodly technological advances, explored the universe, cured diseases, and we We were able to be all these things and do all these things because we were informed by great men, men who were revered. First step in solving any problem is recognizing there is one. America is not the greatest country in the world anymore.
0: Enough? So... I think the answer that Will gives to this question is it's important because it illustrates some of the challenges with figuring out how do we, can we even answer this question? How do you even define what the greatest yeah, country in the world is? And I think that, you know, we've done, incre- like I said, we've done incredible things in this country. We won two world wars. We've, uh, because of the actions of the United States of America over the last century, Countless people did not die that maybe otherwise would have died. If we not done what we did, we ushered in. We built the middle class. We built the wealthiest economy in the history of the world. Those are all great things. But also, there's a lot of other things that we're not great at. There's a lot of Mm -hmm. other things. You know, people like like he talks about. Other countries have freedom. We like to say, what is the defining people? You ask me, what's the defining characteristic of America? They say freedom. They say we're free. You know, we fight when we our military goes and they fight to keep us free. Um, There's lots of other countries, as he says in the clip, that have freedom, too. Right. Japan has freedom. England has freedom. Uh, There's lots of countries that have freedom. And in some cases, if you look at, you know, the objective measures of which countries are the most free, we're not number one. And so I think it's less important for us to look at ourselves and, and try and decide, are we the are we greatest? The are we the best? Are we better than everybody else? And more to constantly be looking at ourselves and ask us, how should we do better? How can we be better? How can we uh, continue to grow? How can we continue to make America the best America that it can be rather than trying to be the better than every other country? And
1: part of that is being self-aware enough as a country to recognize our flaws and work on those versus just hiding them in the shadows and acting like that.
0: Yes, absolutely. And I think there are I think most of the country is is there. I think most of the country is happy to have that conversation and wants to, and recognizes that we have challenges like any country would, yeah. and that we need to work to fix those things so we can be the best version of ourselves. And I think that's the challenge that we need to, that we need to do.
1: You're like my own personal Will McAvoy. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: Progress is slow, but I'm in it for the long haul. Um,
1: okay, another question, and we'll try to wrap up. These are kind of big ones. It's really hard to make any of them short and sweet, Seems like more than ever, we are being pushed into groups or seen as part of a group instead of individuals like white versus black, left versus right, mask versus anti-mask, gay versus straight. And I feel like if seen as individuals and not put into groups, we would have more unity. I know you have thoughts about this.
0: Uh, You know, I mean, I think we have this is what people. Wait,
1: I want you to answer. And then I want to tell you what I thought you were going to answer. saying This will be fun.
0: Okay. I mean, I think this is what people refer to, and you might have heard them say, you talk about, quote, unquote, identity politics. Um, I think that we as a country, um, we are an incredibly diverse country. We have people from all backgrounds, all racial and ethnic groups, all... Uh, ideological strains. All oh, we, we, this is a diverse country. It's only getting more diverse. The youngest, gener- youngest generations in this country right now are the most diverse that have ever existed.
1: Which makes me so happy.
0: And I would argue, and some may, some can feel free to disagree with me, but I would argue that our strength is in that diversity, is in the fact that we have all of these different walks of life represented in kind of the fabric of who we are as a people. And so, yes, I think when you have, and we've seen this in other countries, it doesn't just happen in America, but when you have large levels of diversity, which means lots of differences, um, it becomes easier to divide based on those differences. and people just by our very nature as, as humans, we tend to gravitate to those who are like us, who are similar to us, who have the same experience as us, who believe the same things as us, who look like us. Um, and, that's, and that's natural to a certain extent. I don't, think, I don't think that's bad on its face. I think there are certain things that, um, you know, me as a, you know, in my particular instance, I am a I am a Mormon. I am a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. A lot of my social circle are fellow Mormons because we it's share we share that in common. We have the same values. We have the same view on how the world works, on how the universe Similar works, literally. Similar lifestyles. We're not going out to the bar because we, you know— We all got our
1: kids. We all got our We kids. all got
0: a lot of kids. <laughs> um, and I think— you know, and I think that's okay. I think that it's okay for folks to hold on to those pieces of their identity and to be proud of their identities. I think so. Uh, for so long in this country, we haven't been able to, or it's been looked down upon for people to be proud of some of these pieces of their identity. Well,
1: you can't share your identity. Particularly those who are... You can't are, share your identity until you're proud of who you are. I don't think anyone can authentically sure. share themselves until they're content and proud of who they are.
0: Yes, and, you know, for... A lot of people who are of minority identities, whether racial or sexual orientation or gender identities, women, um, for a long time, they were they were subjugated based on their identities. And many still are, right? Many still face these challenges, face discrimination. And a lot of times, you know, the way, A, the way you deal with that is by banding together who face those same problems, banding together with people who are having that same experience and and creating that community to, to and that solidarity to try and get through those challenges, that oppression. Um, so I think that's super important, a super important part of, of identity. But also kind of the other side of that is um, trying to make change by Changing the system and how it treats your identity and trying to be proud of your identity and advocate for your group, whatever, whatever groups you're part of. Yeah, we're all part of different groups. And so I don't think it's bad that we're part of these groups. I don't think it's bad that we have affinity with these different groups. I think what's important for us as a country is that we learn to respect those who are from other groups and are not part of our group. I think that is the thing that is the hardest part about the moment that we're in, is it feels like a lot of times there isn't that respect for those who are different, whether they believe different, they look different, they love different, um, they feel differently from you. Um, And I think that is the challenge, is building that respect. And if we can build that respect and build that love, even for people who are different than you, because we are all different and this is a diverse place and we will never be the same. We We don't want it to be. We do not want that. That that will make our country weaker. Um, But if we can respect one another in all of our differences and appreciate, not just respect, but appreciate our differences and understand how each of us and our differences, all together, we make our country stronger, even if we're different. Um, I think that's how you get to unity. I think it's understanding Understanding that diversity, understanding that difference and learning to accept, respect and appreciate it. Wow,
1: I feel like if Cory Booker over here
0: <laughs> Cory Booker is a good guy to listen to on this stuff, for sure.
1: Um I that is a really good answer. I thought you were gonna take more of the approach, like I feel like you have a spiel from like, I don't know, at some point in your Hadaway days of like talking about brands and how everybody wants to feel like they're part of a brand. Yeah. And like, you're like a Levi's example or like a Nike example. I don't oh, know. Yeah,
0: that's a whole nother thing. I
1: thought that's how you're going to answer this question.
0: That's a whole nother thing. But that that is, that goes to the idea of Everybody feeling, wants to be part of a group. They want to be, we as human beings are social human beings. So to
1: try beings. to be like, oh, let's not put people in groups because. We are part of groups. That would make it more unity. Like, human.
0: It's human. It's human kind of nature. It. it is hardwired into us to be with people where we feel safe where we feel community where we feel light, seen that we feel and a lot of times that goes to that leads us to groups that are similar to us in some way that we yeah. form affinity with them and so that's what i was saying about that but yeah. it is it is hardwired into us as humans we will never get rid of that
1: yeah that's a, it's that's not it.
0: a recent not a recent invention yeah this,
1: is, yeah, yeah, yeah
0: this is thousands of years of hard coding
1: um i guess I guess these last two kind of questions are kind of the same, and I'll group them together just for the sake of time, and you can answer of them what you want. What are your personal views, and what do you think the government should do, and what would you change about our government?
0: I mean, I kind of answered this, I think, already at the beginning when Mm -hmm. we talked about... What do Democrats believe? And obviously, I'm a I'm a professional Democrat, so I uh, I, I believe what my party uh, believes. I, I obviously chose to dedicate like, my I'm life like, to this. No, no,
1: no, but yeah, you're a professional Democrat. That's actually funny when you say it like that. I'm like, of course, like the party as a whole, but like, and I know you say, this is actually on the smart question. I know you say you're not a one-party, you're not a one-issue person, and that's why you like campaigns, because you just like to win, and you don't really have an issue, but like, of... I don't know. Is there like one thing within the umbrella of the Democratic Party that like really like that you really believe in?
0: I believe in all of it. I mean, there's a reason why I dedicated my life to this is because I believe that if we elect more Democrats and we put Democrats in charge of the uh, of, of our government at all levels, that we will produce better results in a better country for more people and. Um, and produce a country that works for everybody. Because right now I don't believe that it does. I told you my story. Um, That being said, you said I'm not a one-issue guy. There are people that get into politics because they believe really strongly on one issue. For example, in the Democratic Party, there are people who get into politics because uh, they believe really strongly that we need to protect a woman's right to choose. And on the other side of the aisle, there are people who get an apology. They believe just as strongly that we need to not do that. And we need to ban abortion and that we should illegalize it. And those people and they, their consent to spend their entire lives on those issues. And I, I am grateful for those people who believe so strongly in one thing and are so passionate about that issue that they're going to dedicate their entire lives to it. I believe in all the issues. I don't have one issue that I think is like the most important to me that I could wake up every morning and spend my entire life on. I'm glad that there are people like that because they are the most important people. Um, but I, like you said, I believe in all of them. I believe we need to put Democrats in power so they can win on. We can win on all these issues all the way. we can we can we can move and make progress on all of these issues. And so that's why I've kind of found my place in campaigns at least through this part in my career, is that it allows me to do that. I feel like I am making progress on all the issues I care about by putting people in power in, in, in Congress and in the White House who will move the ball forward on those issues that I think are important and I am I'm not the person who's going to sit there and write the piece of legislation on how we give healthcare to more Americans and make it make it less expensive. That's not me. I'm not smart enough to do that. But I am smart enough to figure out how to get that person elected to office so they can write that bill. And you know in the in the instance of like if you were going to give me what would be the one thing that you would change about our government? There's a lot of things that I would love yeah. to change about a lot of things. I think the biggest challenge Facing our country facing and it's I think this is a huge driver of the pol- the polarization that we have. it's a huge driver of what turns people off about elections um, I would get rid of I would reduce the role of money in politics, particularly oh, in campaigns which is an interesting answer for somebody who works, works for a super, super pack. Pack. <laughs> Um but I think everybody everybody who I work with
1: would agree would
0: agree that our goal would be that we put ourselves out of business that we put, Democrats in office who can reform our campaign finance system, remove the influence of big money and large contributions from our political system the way it used to be. This is a recent – this is a this very – like
1: Obama on, right?
0: This is – not Obama. It wasn't his doing, but
1: – Well, no, no. I'm saying but it was like – like, 2010. It wasn't – Yeah,
0: yeah. Yes. The Citizens United ruling by the Supreme Court let a flood of money into, into our campaigns, into our political system. Um, by basically saying that that money is speech, that spending money on politics is the same as having free speech under the First Amendment, which I disagree with uh, that that's interpretation. That's
1: bizarre. They really ruled that.
0: That's, that's why we have what we have, the system that we have right now. And so if you have gotten sick of seeing nothing but political advertisements on your... in a number.
1: Get in line. Which
0: means you probably... Uh, Those a,
1: very expensive mailers. Why do they do them? They don't actually... I don't think they help.
0: Yes, but if you live in a swing state and during an election year and you get sick of having nothing but wall-to-wall television advertisements every time you turn on the TV during commercials. Uh, that is because we have more money in politics than we've ever had before, and part of that, I think, is a good thing. You see, somebody like you know Joe Biden, for example, raised three hundred sixty-five million dollars in the month of August just just recently. A huge portion of that, a majority, the vast majority of that came from small dollar donations from just normal everyday Mind people signs. giving money through the Internet. And this is part of the times that we live in and you can give money through the Internet. And it's super easy and everyone can spend 25 bucks on a yard sign and or you know, give your five dollars every month that you want to give to support the candidate you believe. And I think that's great. I have a problem with huge checks,
1: Well, corporate checks, or-
0: corporate money money from the super wealthy, um, people essentially trying to buy elections. And so I think if I was going to change, wave a magic wand and change anything, I would change that. Because I think if you, and this is not just in campaigns, this is in lobbying. This is in companies spending millions and millions and millions of dollars to get lobbyists to get access to um, you know, to get access well, that and influence.
1: Was all part of the same citizenship. No, right? that was that's oh. a
0: different thing. Oh, okay, that's a different thing. But all of this, just just the corrosive, what I believe is corrosive well, money, influence money of money in, and in politics, um, you know, campaign donations. Just I just wish it was all more tightly regulated, which it used to be, particularly on the campaign side. Um, and I think that would go a long way to changing. Not it won't fix everything. But it, will ch- it would change a lot of how the game is played, which I, I think would get say, you better results. I was going to
1: say, in this digital age, we've never had money out of politics. So it would be a fascinating like social experiment if, for some reason, Citizens United does get overturned. And they do, which could happen under Joe Biden, right? Like, that's potentially... And if no. that happened, I mean, if it did, and, like, in like in this, because you said in 2010 is kind of what it all started, and that was, like, as social media and everything was ramping up, and it would be interesting to see politics in the current day without all the money but with the digital accessibility that there is now. It would be interesting.
0: It it would. And I think that, you know, uh, it will authentic. be, yes, and it's going to be, it would be a battle to change it. Uh, you know, I don't, you're getting into, like, constitutional amendments versus (laughs) what you can pass through Congress. And there's a whole, you know, whole thing. Uh, I am, like I said, not the person to figure out how to do it and what the system, what the system would look like and like what the best policy uh, priorities. I know there are lots of people who think a lot about this who I know who are super smart. And I would like them to be able to figure out. How do we, A, make our system a little bit more fair, B, how do we reduce the role of big money in it And in order to, C, hopefully, um, get better results out of our system mm-hmm. and kind of ratchet down the temperature a little bit? I think money is a huge part of it. Um, and so if I was going to change one thing about the government with my magic wand, that's what it would that's be. That's
1: not what I was expecting. I don't know what I was expecting, but that was, that was a curveball. Anyway.
0: I'll keep you on your toes, dear.
1: Well, that was a long but productive and very insightful. Um, First episode of Dinner at Our Place. The restart. The restart. The reboot. Wasn't that like the name of like The Hills when they rebooted it? I don't know. Um,
0: Dinner at Our Place reloaded.
1: Reloaded. We will hopefully be back. I'm making Steve commit to this right now. We'll hopefully be back once a week between now and I think mid-October. We'll be back with one episode a week to hopefully persuade you to vote for Joe Biden if we have not already.
0: Or just give you a good time. (laughs) All right. Thanks, everybody. Have a good one.
1: See ya.